The words were as startling and as ominous as any defendant in a courtroom would ever want to hear. I cannot hide my disgust, my disdain for this criminal offense. So spoke U.S. Judge Emmett Sullivan this week as he excoriated President Trump's former national security advisor, retired three-star General Michael Flynn. When he entered the courtroom that day to hear the judge pronounce his sentence, Flynn had every reason to believe he would get off with no jail time for his admitted crime of lying to the FBI about his conversations with the Russian ambassador in December 2016. But Sullivan, a judge with no patience for government misconduct, would have none of it. Flynn had lied to two FBI agents while serving as a top U.S. official and he had done so on the physical premises of the White House in an office in the West Wing. Sullivan repeated that point twice. He signaled that, notwithstanding that the prosecutors for special counsel Robert Mueller had recommended no incarceration in exchange for Flynn's cooperation in the Russia probe, he was prepared to send the defendant to prison after all. Was Flynn really prepared to go through with this? Flynn and his lawyers were clearly startled. They decided to take the judge up on a last-minute offer to delay the sentencing so Flynn can show his true value to the government by testifying in another case involving two former business associates charged with illegally lobbying for the Turkish government. It was a cruel and humiliating setback for a man who once memorably shouted, lock her up, about Hillary Clinton during the 2016 Republican convention. But what did this extraordinary moment tell us about the state of Mueller's investigation? We'll discuss that and take stock more broadly of what we learned about the Mueller probe in 2018 and other investigations into the president and where they're headed now in the new year with two former Justice Department veterans on this special Christmas edition of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia is a ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I've been to a lot of sentencing hearings, as I'm sure you have. Uh, Sometimes they can get quite emotional. The defendants give some tearful plea about urging leniency, asking for forgiveness from the judge. But I've never seen anything like this. Yeah, it sounds like it was high drama. You were in the courtroom. Uh, Yeah. Judging from our conversations, it sounds like uh, Judge Sullivan, who I covered when he was a D.C. Superior Court judge many years ago, really reamed Flynn. He even brought up the word treason, although he later walked that back, I think, recognizing that treason is actually (laughs) an actual crime with legal meaning. Right, right. Well, he asked asked, uh, Mueller's prosecutor uh, if there was any consideration of charging Flynn with 
treason. And actually, he got his facts wrong on one point. He accused Flynn of illegally lobbying for Turkey while he was serving in the White House. Actually, Flynn had terminated his um, his work for the Turks at that point, although he was lobbying for Turkey while he was serving as Trump's chief foreign policy advisor during the campaign, which is a pretty big conflict on its face. Sounds like treason with a small team. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the interesting thing is my recollection is that the Flynn team was actually happy when they realized that uh, Judge Sullivan was going to be the judge in, in this case uh, because he's actually known for having been extremely tough on the government. And right, the famous right. case involving former Senator uh, Ted Stevens, I think, exactly. from Alaska, right. uh, where, where he reamed the prosecution throughout the case, basically, uh, because of overzealous uh, prosecution. Well, very different Right. Uh, and it's Sullivan in this case. Well, the lawyers made a fatal mistake. They raised the question of government misconduct and the fact that uh, Flynn was told by uh, Andrew McCabe, then the deputy FBI director, that he didn't have to bring in a White House lawyer when the FBI agents went over to uh, question him. And they thought that would be somehow ameliorating. Uh, it didn't fly with the judge. You know, Flynn was the national security advisor. He had an obligation to tell the truth to the FBI. He didn't need a lawyer present. To do but, so. but at the end of the day, it seems like there's a disconnect between, you know, all of the drama in the courtroom and what this is going to amount to in terms of where the Mueller investigation is going. Right. And the fact is, and we'll discuss this uh, during the show, the, the uh, both Mueller's prosecutor and the defense lawyer, Robert Kellner, made it clear that Flynn's cooperation with the Mueller investigation is largely complete, which does suggest that they don't need him to testify in another case against somebody else in the Mueller investigation. The prosecutors in Northern Virginia do in the Turkish case, but not in Mueller. But look, there's so much else we need to talk about uh, today. First of all, the news that uh, Mueller has now asked for an official record of Roger Stone's testimony before the House Intelligence Committee in May of 2017. That's a, uh, a clear sign they're getting ready to indict him. They've had the unofficial record for some time, but you need the official record to actually bring criminal charges. So uh, that does appear to be the next shoe to drop. And then the other sort of political shoe dropping right now is this extraordinary memo that the Wall Street Journal has just reported on by William Barr, designated to be the next attorney general, saying he doesn't believe that there's any basis for Mueller investigating the president for obstruction at all. That was a memo, a lengthy memo he wrote to the Justice Department in June of 2018. That strikes me as really problematic uh, for Barr. It's one thing if he had offered his opinions orally, but to actually write a 20-page memo laying all of this out that now every Democrat uh, on the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to have and is going to be able to wave in his face during confirmation hearings. You know, ultimately, the question of recusal is a complicated one. It's unlikely, I think, at the end of the day that the Justice Department ethics lawyers would say that he has to recuse himself, but it creates a huge perception problem and I think is going to make his confirmation difficult. All right, we got to talk about one other thing. Your skullduggery co-host, moi, was in the news this week. I'm walking my dog on Tuesday, looking at my Twitter feed, and suddenly I see that the President of the United States is tweeting about This is Tuesday morning. It's the first thing I did when I woke up. (laughs) I look at my phone. What do we always Uh, see on the lock screen on our phone? We see Donald Trump's tweets. And this time I see your name, Michael Isikoff. Let me read this. It says, Michael Isikoff was the first to report 
dossier. But by the way, my right. first assumption was that he was attacking you, right? right. That's not what <laughs> happened. Okay, so Michael Isikoff was the first to report dossier allegations and now seriously doubts dossier claims. The whole Russian collusion thing was a hoax. And then he goes on and he, he'd already used all, up all of his characters. In the next tweet, he says, will never be proven and are likely false. Read the next Thank line. you to Michael Isikoff, <laughs> Yahoo, for honesty. So you get a lot of praise on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you get a lot of praise for all the good Boy, work that you've yeah, been doing. Yeah. This is probably the unlikeliest source of praise that you have uh, ever gotten in your life. Uh, what was it and, like? And got me no end uh, of grief, by the way, in the Twitterverse, which uh, you know, suddenly I'm being attacked for being a, uh, a slave I, I, and I, I, uh, booster of the president, defender of the president. I saw someone tweeting, uh, yeah. Isikoff, stop obstructing the investigation. <laughs> right, maybe right, maybe right. they think Mueller should come after you. So let me clarify for the skullduggery Wait, 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 wait. You're, are you, you're about to say that Donald Trump tweeted something out of context? <laughs> well, sad to say our president was not being completely truthful about what I actually said, or he didn't read what I actually said. This was some a, a very good podcast interview, by the way, but with a guy named John Ziegler, who's associated with Medialite, we were talking about uh, you know the investigations in the president, something we talk about all the time. And he asked me about the Steele dossier. And what I said is that some of the more sensational allegations in the Steele dossier have not borne out and are likely to end up false. And I was speaking specifically about two. I raised the infamous P-tape, which we have discussed before on this show, and the fact that Steele himself in Russian Roulette, the book I wrote with David Korn, is quoted as telling others that uh, he believes it's really only 50-50, which is, you know, a pretty good sign that the guy who put it out there in the first place really isn't quite sure it's true and his faith in it has faded. But the other one is the uh, claim that Michael Cohen went to Prague to meet with Russian agents to discuss paying off hackers who were hacking into uh, Clinton emails. and Which appears to be false. Making the fact that not only has Michael Cohen consistently denied that both before he was cooperating with the Mueller investigation, but also through his lawyer Lanny Davis after he was cooperating and that he wasn't charged with that. He was charged with lying about other things, the infamous Trump Tower Moscow deal, but he was not charged with lying when he flatly denied he'd ever been to Prague and met with Russian agents to talk about hacking Clinton emails. And, you know, that is such a sensational allegation and so crucial. If true, uh, it would bolster the uh, collusion claims, you know, right from the get-go. And um, if Mueller had that, he would have required Cohen to plead to it because it's a much more important, serious crime than anything he's pled to. And he would have charged him with lying about it before the Congress. He didn't do that. To me, that's pretty compelling evidence that Mueller doesn't have the evidence to back it up. But what I also said in that interview is that Christopher Steele, the author of the dossier, was clearly onto something. He understood you know, the fact that the Russians had launched a major effort to interfere in our democracy, that they had made multiple efforts to cultivate people inside the Trump campaign 
campaign and that there was contacts that were concealed from the American public. So I wasn't backing away from anything or intending to exonerate the president on any matter. And in um, fact, what you said in that podcast is what you have been saying all along on this podcast and in other interviews. You've been appropriately skeptical of the uh, Steele dossier. Of some aspects of the of Steele some, do- some aspects of the Steele do- dossier. dossier. Right. And, you know, that report was never considered finished intelligence. It was always, uh, right. you know, somewhere between raw yeah. and... Uh, and, yeah. and partly cooked. Well, raw uh, intelligence is sometimes a way, yeah. to, is a fancy way of describing uncorroborated gossip. Right, times. and some of it, yeah. and a lot of it yeah. has been corroborated. But some of it But has. my point right. is, you have not changed your positions. You, no. You're an equal opportunity abuser, and I always right. call you, and uh, mm-hmm. you know there are going to be people on both sides of what is a huge partisan divide over this investigation who are sometimes going to make you a hero and sometimes as in this case people on the left uh, who are critical but of if, you. if and that's look if the president's tweets bring more listeners to skullduggery he will have served an important public service so hats off to president trump let's get on with the show <laughs> are joined now by two people uh, best situated to dissect the latest developments in the Mueller investigation, where w- what we've learned this year and what we are likely to learn in the coming weeks and months. Saul Weisenberg, former federal prosecutor, former deputy independent counsel to Ken Starr, somebody who knows a little bit about impeachment and uh, what the basis for it could or could not be. And Matt Miller, former chief of public affairs at the Department of Justice under then Attorney General Eric Holder, Saul and Matt, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks Great to be here. So look, there's like a million things we could be talking about, and we will, but let's just start out with this memo that Bill Barr, the designated Attorney General, wrote to the Justice Department arguing that Mueller's obstruction investigation was ill-conceived from the start, is not legally sound. This is the guy that the president has tapped to be his next attorney general. What does this tell us about what is going to happen here with the Mueller report, particularly that aspect of it that deals with obstruction? Saul? Well, I would Let's focus first on the substance of what he said, which is that uh, he rejects the theory under which a president could be guilty of criminal obstruction of justice for firing his FBI director, irrespective of the motive. And I think, and I've consistently said, that's a completely sound position, and a number of people have taken that position, and I believe the Arthur Anderson case, Arthur Anderson versus United States, supports that position. Now, that's a different question than whether or not the effect that that uh, lengthy, was it an email or that lengthy memo will have on his uh, confirmation to be attorney general. I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody who's going to be an attorney general, an inferior officer working for the president of the United States to express an opinion like that before he becomes attorney general. So do you, Saul, so do you think that if he were to be confirmed and take office as, as attorney general, and follow through on his convictions, that he should just shut down the obstruction part of the investigation? Oh, I don't know that he would do that. And uh, I don't know if... It, or even, the, even you know, using the, the Comey firing as a sort of overt act of the obstruction part of the investigation. If that's what he believes, why shouldn't he act on his convictions? 
because he might believe it and still believe that he should not interfere for either political, prudential, or legal reasons with what Mueller is doing. He might have that position, but say, I'm not going to interfere with Bob Mueller because he's not going to indict the president anyway, and no court's going to accept this theory of obstruction. I, I don't know. This strikes me as a train wreck. Uh, you've got a special counsel who has been focusing for a year and a half on potential obstruction by the president and and a potentially incoming new attorney general who doesn't believe there's any legal basis for it. Matt, your take. I don't have necessarily any beef with the views that Bill Barr expressed in the memo. I don't agree with him. I don't think it's the right interpretation of the law. But as a private citizen, as, as Saul noted, it is a, 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 a question that has been debated in legal circles. The problem I have is I suspect that his authorship of this memo and the beliefs that he holds is the very reason he was picked as AG to oversee this probe. I think the thing that was most disturbing about this report is not just that he wrote it and sent it to DOJ unsolicited. But at the same time he did, he gave it to the White House. And so we now know that the president has picked, after firing sessions, two people to oversee the case. One, Matt Whitaker, who had publicly expressed hostility to the probe on television and privately nodded his head along, as is the reporting, when the president would attack it in the Oval Office. That's the acting AG. And he wants the permanent AG, someone who wrote a memo saying that the obstruction probe is inappropriate and that the president shouldn't be questioned about it. So, and, and by the way, so, we also know, based on reporting that Iskikov and I did, that Barr uh, met with the president because the president and the White House were reaching out to him to possibly be Trump's chief defense lawyer in the Russia probe. And you know he rebuffed them. He, it wasn't a formal interview. They were right. gauging his interest. But in the course of that conversation, he may well have expressed some of these and, beliefs. And when the president announced Barr's nomination at the White House a few weeks ago, he said, this is a quote, he was my first choice from the beginning. Well, now we know why, because yeah. since the summer, he, he's yeah. known that the bar has well, views this. The obstruction part is appropriate. What's wrong? I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I see nothing unethical whatsoever in picking somebody who has problems with aspects of the Mueller investigation. He's not going to be a judge. There's nothing unethical about it. it as a practical matter, it may make him make it much more difficult for him well, to get confirmed. Well, here, here's the problem, Saul, which is that under the special counsel regulations, Mueller presents his report to the attorney general. Right. So if Mueller is laying out a case for obstruction in that report, and you have an attorney general who doesn't believe that the president can commit obstruction of justice, it's hard for me to see how that plays out. What's Barr going to do? Is he going to take the report under advisement? Is he going to kill it? What When Congress asks for it, does he hand it over? I mean, there's all sorts of questions here. And let me just read just a couple of uh, sentences, key sentences, right from the top of that memo. And this is Barr writing to Deputy AG Rod Rosenstein and Assistant AG Steve Engel on June 8, 2018. Mueller should not be permitted to demand that the president submit to interrogation about alleged obstruction. Apart from whether Mueller has a strong enough factual basis for doing so, Mueller's obstruction theory is fatally misconceived. As I understand it, his theory is premised on a novel and legally unsupportable reading of the law. If you believe that, and you're the AG, what do you do with the Mueller report? Well, you're assuming that the Mueller report, even if Barr isn't AG, would necessarily be published by the attorney general or the deputy attorney general, which is, first of all, we have to assume Trump won't be indicted while he's in office because that's a DOJ policy. Mueller is bound to follow DOJ policy, and we know Barr will follow that policy. We know Rosenstein will. So he's not going to be indicted. 
The question is, will the report be public or not? And I would assume that one way or another that that report is going to be made public. But you're right. He could try to suppress it. By the way, I disagree with one aspect of what you read. It is not a novel. The idea that the president can obstruct justice if he fires Comey for corrupt motives, I believe it's incorrect, but it is not novel. There is case, some case law to support it, and there's case law going the other way. It seems to me, at a minimum, this guarantees that every Democrat is likely to vote against his confirmation. I think that's right, unless he promises to recuse himself from the case. I mean, that's the which, way. Which, that's which, the way which, 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 how can he which do I that? Can't, I can't imagine he would do, because, as I said a minute ago, I think he was picked for this job precisely because of these views. In fact, well, in fact I talked to someone who knows him well who said the only, the only circumstance that he can imagine under which Barr would withdraw would be if he were told that he had to recuse himself. Now, he's not going to be told by the president, obviously, to do that. But is it conceivable that the Justice Department Ethics Office uh, would make some rule determination on that before he's confirmed or <coughs> only after he's confirmed? No, because the way they make these determinations, you have to be a you know, sitting officer to seek advice from them. But then it has to be about the facts of the case. And he can't know anything about the facts of the case right now. And I suspect, by the way, even with this memo, they probably wouldn't find a technical conflict. When they find a technical conflict and say you have to recuse, it's because you represented somebody. Um, you had you took a position that was was of interest in an investigation. It's not because of views you expressed. They will often tell you, you don't technically need to recuse here. Now it may be in the interest of the department that you recuse. But my guess is this wouldn't. You know, this is an issue for the Senate to deal with. Either it's and by the way, recuse yeah. or, or not meddle. It's not really an issue for them. And by the way, as we record this podcast, the news just broke that the Justice Department ethics lawyers have concluded that uh, Matt Whitaker, the acting attorney general, who has also been publicly very critical of the Mueller investigation, basically has espoused the witch hunt line, does not have to recuse. And that's not surprising either, and I don't think that's wrong. Let's just remember, Trump fired Sessions because he recused himself from the uh, Russia investigation. It it seems inconceivable that uh, the guy he picked to replace him is going to recuse himself. Let me say to Saul's point, I don't think it's wrong from a a strict ethics guidance standpoint that Matt Whitaker didn't have to recuse. I mean, based on the department's rules, I don't think it's wrong. But I will say attorneys general in the past have often looked at these and taken the view that if my involvement in this probe is going to bring into question the integrity of the probe, I'll recuse myself. And the, the best example I can think of is when I worked for Eric Holder and the John Edwards prosecution was pending. He wasn't Something technically, we want to talk about today, by the sure, way. Sure. He wasn't uh, technically required to recuse from that probe based on any involvement he had. But because he had overseen the vice presidential vetting process for President Obama, John Edwards had been lobbying for that job at the time. There was no strict recusal. Holder took the view that my involvement in this will bring the department's integrity into the, into question. So I'm just going to take myself completely out and leave it to someone whose integrity isn't questioned. So, but, you know, be careful what you but before you leave this yeah, issue. Yeah. President Trump should be careful what he asks for. Barr is a very strong figure. So, yes, he's got the guts. If he feels something wrong is, is something is wrong about the Mueller investigation, if he feels that the Southern District that Kuzami, I haven't heard anyone talk about this, should not be looking into the election campaign violations. He will take action. But by the same token, if the president goes after him the way he went after Jeff Sessions, 
as I've heard somebody say, he'll he'll open up his own Twitter account. <laughs> that, and, and that was on Skullduggery. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes, yes. No, Tim, but he will. He, Tim, he, Tim he's Flanagan, this, uh, former head of uh, oh, OLC, yeah. said that that's what Barr will do. And he's got a yeah. pretty sharp wit. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got the stature to do it. So <clears throat> Okay, so last question on this. If you are on Mueller's staff right now and have been working on the obstruction phase of the investigation for the last year and a half, and you read this memo, what do you do? Well, the first thing is that person on Mueller's staff, they've got all kinds of evidence that we don't know about. Barr is only talking about a situation where all you have is that the president fires Jim Comey. We've heard about and, and a, after asking Comey to go easy on right. Michael Flynn. But you I can guarantee you, I don't know what they've got, but I can guarantee you with the way this administration operates with it, its feet continually in its mouth, it would not surprise me at all if there are real actual classic obstructive acts that Mueller has uncovered. So that's the first thing I'm going to think about. I don't need to worry about that because when Bill Barr in his oversight role sees what we have, he'll realize it's not just what's been publicly revealed. But I think otherwise you do what Mueller's team has done. You do your job. I mean, they've been very impressive. They've been very aggressive, but they haven't leaked, as far as I can tell, in any substantial way. I don't know what he's doing behind the scenes, but I haven't heard Bob Mueller say, I support these efforts to protect me legislatively. It's just like, I'm Bob Mueller. I'm going to always be Bob Mueller. I don't care what you try to do to me. I'm going forward as long as I'm in this job, and you're not going to scare me, and Bill Barr isn't going to scare me, and nobody's going to scare me. Well, when you hear from Mueller's team, it's not because they're talking to the press. It's because occasionally they take some investigative step that seems to have real consequences. And they just did that, right, Mike? Right, yes. They have formally asked for the official record of Roger Stone's testimony to the House Intelligence Committee. They've had an unofficial record of that for quite some time. I think the testimony was in May of 2017. They've been investigating Stone intensively for quite some time. We've been expecting a Stone indictment. One key witness we had just had on (coughs) Skullduggery, Randy Credico. So this seems to be the last formal step before a Stone indictment, which is the one we've all been waiting for. Matt, your take on that? Yeah, look, I think it's been clear ever since we saw this draft Jerome Corsi plea agreement that Corsi made public that Roger Stone had jeopardy over lying to Congress. When you have a witness who you see the plea agreement, he apparently told the grand jury and then said it publicly on Ari Melba's show. Roger Stone and I cooked up this cover story for him to take to Congress <laughs> and tell Congress. Right. When you see a witness say that, it's, yeah. it's pretty clear. It's to blame it on the comedian, Credico, yeah, right? That, that's that, right? That was the back channel. That, that's how Stone knew that WikiLeaks was about to dump all these emails damaging to yeah. Hillary Clinton. So when you right. see a co-conspirator saying, we cooked up this cover story for Roger Stone to tell to Congress, you can bet pretty safely that a charge for Roger Stone lying to Congress is coming soon. I think the big question is, is that the only charge that Stone is going to be hit with? Or is there something else? You know, they've got this chain of custody of, of the information about the WikiLeaks dump that goes from Corsi to Stone. And does it go from Stone to the president? Does Mueller know what it, happened around yeah. that? And does he get charged with something else other than lying to Congress? Right. It seems to me that if it's just lying to Congress and you can't prove an underlying crime that Stone really was in communication with somebody in WikiLeaks and really did have the advanced knowledge, then 
it's kind of a chicken shit case. At least but that's, that's my reading. Well, but that here's here's well, the thing. I mean, you got You got to prove that there really was a back channel. He when he no, you don't. You just you have don't, to prove that he lied. So? I mean, and this is all this bullshit about process crimes. Look, when you are special counsel, if you're going to do it right. You're going to be hated, and you're going to be like Fitzgerald, and you're going to be like Mueller. You're going to say from the beginning you are going to strike terror into the hearts of anybody you're going to interview. You want that person to say, I cannot lie to Bob Mueller's team. If I do, I'm going to be prosecuted, and the way you do that is you indict the first person who lies to you, whether or not there's an underlying crime, and you send out a message, and it's pretty clear that a lot of people have taken a long time to learn the message in the Trump circle. But think of all the people that Mueller has spoken to, presumably, who, seeing what happened to Papadopoulos, seeing what's happened to these other people, have decided we better talk. So let me ask you a question. Let's say Stone was in direct communication with Julian Assange, as he publicly said he was in August of 2016. Of course, he then said he was bullshitting about that. He really wasn't. But... Let's say and Assange told him, yeah, I'm going to dump these emails I got in the first week in October. Is that a crime? I don't think so. Not the, not under the facts that you've said. There's well, got- but one other element here. Let's say he yeah. also, the next day, because I think there is evidence that he, that he did see Trump in that period. He uh, talked to Trump the talk, day or, after or talk he to gets him. an email from Corsi okay. telling him that Assange is about to dump something. Okay, so the added element is he says to Trump, hey, I talked to Julian Assange. He's got these, uh, these emails, these DNC emails. He's got Podesta emails. He's going to dump them. And Trump says, that's great. That's excellent. And then that's it. So is there any crime there? If all Trump says is that's great, no. It, you know, it's very clear the law of aiding and abetting, right? You have to have knowledge that a crime is being committed or about to be committed, and you have to aid or encourage it. Well, what if he says way. he's got hacked emails that he's going to dump? I can say that's great. I can say anything is great as long as I'm not encouraging you. If you're wavering as to whether or not you're going to rob somebody's house or steal something or kill somebody, and I say, you can do it. You'll be a hero in the conservative movement. I'm aiding and abetting. Okay? What, if, what, what if he said— what if, what if you've also said publicly, I encourage the Russian government to obtain these emails and publish them? Russia, if you're listening, you yes, mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's like that's like a, that's like the fame, you know. That's political hyperbole, I would argue. <laughs> right. right. But but I mean, if if it's a serious conversation, if Trump says in some way, let's go and encourage that. It, it's just like if on the airplane when they were coming up with the BS explanation for the Trump Tower meeting, if Trump had said. And they came up with a false story. If Trump had said, now going forward, this is going to be our story to everybody. I want this told to the Mueller people and everything. Crime, right? But if it's just, this is another one of my lies, not a crime. Yeah, well, look, let's remember, we all published, wrote about, discussed the uh, State Department cables that WikiLeaks released. Um, We all talked and wrote about the Snowden NSA documents that he both were the products of federal crimes, stolen material. And a lot of people said, great, I'm glad he published Right, right, right. To me, it only becomes a crime, the underlying crime, if somehow Stone knows that these were the Russians who did this and you know, then either encouraged it or told 
Trump about it, and then they lied about it. I, obviously, the details matter a lot, but as long as you have the cutout of WikiLeaks, which presents itself as this transparency organization, it's... And you didn't know, do yeah. the hacking and itself. And didn't do the hacking itself. We know from Mueller's indictment, they got the emails through right. Guccifer 2.0, the online Russian persona. We don't know that Assange knew that Guccifer was a Russian agent. It's really hard to sort out, to identify what the criminal conduct is. That's right. And one thing to Trump's advantage, given the incredible aggressiveness with which Mueller has pursued the case and indicting anybody who lies and they can prove it, if at the end of the day there is no criminal collusion case, nobody will be able to say it's because Mueller didn't investigate it thoroughly enough, because he has. So let's talk about that, because it seems to me we've now had the sentencing of two of Mueller's key witnesses, uh, Michael Flynn, extraordinary sentencing uh, hearing uh, before Judge Sullivan this week in which uh, basically Sullivan reamed out and dressed down Flynn unlike anything I've ever seen in a sentencing hearing and the sentencing the week before of Michael Cohen. And to me, the most significant part of this in terms of trying to figure out where Mueller is headed is the fact that we had them at all. Usually you don't go to sentencing with a cooperating witness until that witness's cooperation has completed, including testifying against anybody else who they might, who the prosecutors might bring a case against. What does it tell you that Mueller has gone to sentencing with Cohen and Flynn at this point without bringing any other cases. You know, it's very hard to know. The situations are very different. In Flynn's case, you could look at the fact that he actually still does have legal jeopardy even post-sentencing. His plea agreement is really interesting. Uh, In the agreement, all that the department agrees is that he won't be prosecuted by this office, by Mueller's office, for any other crimes he might have committed. He actually still has jeopardy in the Eastern District of Virginia if they decided they, EDVA, wanted to prosecute him for this case they just brought against his business. That's the Turkish influence His business associates. That's right. So he does have a bit of legal jeopardy. That said, it may be that Mueller has decided he doesn't need Flynn for anything else, either because Flynn doesn't have anything on the president, so he's never going to have to testify at a trial, or all of Flynn's evidence is only against the president and no one else, and there's not going to be a criminal trial of the president, so I don't need to hang this over his head. We really don't know in that case. But what what does that tell you, though, about what Mueller's got? I mean, he's had two major, well, you had three major, four major cooperating witnesses. Papadopoulos was the first, and that kind of collapsed, didn't go anywhere. He wasn't able to give Mueller anything. He had Manafort for a while. That blew up. He didn't get anything out of that. And he's had Cohen and Flynn and has gone to sentencing on both without indicting anybody based on what they told him. I I really think it could mean two things. One, that he didn't get anything that he's going to need to use at trial, which you can read that you can like you can read yeah. that two different ways. You can read right. he didn't get anything valuable. I don't think it's true that he didn't get anything valuable out of Mike Flynn because it's hard to see how he gets a no jail time recommendation without giving something valuable. The other way to look at it is that everything valuable is against the president, and you have locked all that testimony in at the grand jury or in interviews with FBI agents that you're going to use in a report about the president. So you don't ever need him at trial, and I, and, I, and I don't think we'll know until this is over. Well, yeah. not only that, yeah. I mean, if he later decides Flynn not to cooperate, they can still go in and break that plea agreement up. So I would take... Well, I I, I I should point out that in that hearing, Sullivan 
drilled down on this point with both Mueller's prosecutor and the defense lawyers, and they both said that Flynn's cooperation with the Mueller investigation yes, is largely, you know, yeah. is largely complete. And in fact, you know, Flynn's lawyer went even further, Kellner, and said it's almost entirely over. And Mueller yeah, and yeah. Mueller says, right. uh, which is different perhaps than the Eastern District case where it may not be complete. But Mueller has said, the fact is, you can break a plea agreement if the party doesn't cooperate after the person has been sentenced, number one. And number two, keep in mind, I understand they could have charged him with other things, but his guideline range, based on everything we've seen, his sentencing guideline range would have been very low. Let's face it, he's at a level four, so it's zero to six months. Even without a 5K1, a, a guy like Flynn in front of most judges would be a good <laughs> candidate for probation. And again, that's whatever he would have been, whatever he would have been charged with. Also, I, you know, again, I would take Mueller at his word. What Mueller said is he's been cooperative from when we first reached out to him, and he has cooperated enough for the judge to make a decision here. So I wouldn't read anything special into it. He's not going to be barring. A well, the, of the, the question is, if you if you were on Mueller's staff and you had a witness like Flynn and you intended to use him as a witness in another case against somebody else, would you go to sentencing with that witness before he had that you know witness what? had given his or her testimony? It happens more than than you realize. A yes, in the in Sullivan the, said it was rare in the uh, in, in the, the typical in, in the typical situation, the client wants to wait, the defendant wants to wait until he can say, "Look at all I've done to cooperate." But I wouldn't consider it rare. It's the minority. It happens in a minority of cases, maybe 20, 25 percent of the cases. Sometimes these people just want to be sentenced. Can I add that this case is not normal at all? Mike Flynn has been out of work for over a year and a half now. He's had to sell his house to pay his legal bills. He can't really start working again until his sentencing is done. That's a really good point. And Cohen made the same point. You can see why he wants this over with. Right. And Cohen doesn't remember, unlike Flynn, Cohen doesn't have any kind of a 5K1 downward departure agreement. And Cohen in his sentencing memo said, we could wait but he's got to earn a living, and he wants to. If he's going to have a sentence, he wants to get it over with. Do you think Mueller has got a case where he's going to use Cohen as a witness? Mueller, I don't know. The yeah. SDNY. Well, SDNY. Yeah, well, I want to, let's, <laughs> let's get to that because right. we're we're pretty deep into this conversation, and we've talked about basically a sliver of the investigations uh, swirling around Donald Trump. There are about ninety of them, as far as I can tell. The Washington Post did a story recently that said. Basically, every organization that Trump runs or has run over the last 10 years is under some kind of investigation, including most recently the inaugural committee, $107 million raised and and, uh, lots of questions about where that money went. There's uh, tax investigations into the Trump organization. There's just a ton swirling around. I want to know from both of you guys, at this very moment, based on everything we know, where do you think... Trump has the most legal or criminal exposure? Well, from where I sit, again, looking at the what we know publicly, including taking a very close look at the plea papers of everyone who has pled, including the statement of the offense, where, again, a prosecutor typically will want the defendant to plead to the biggest thing that he did so that he can say, I was part of this, and then get a bunch of breaks. If we look at that, I do not believe based on what we've seen, that there's a criminal collusion case and if by the president where they can say the president conspired to commit one of three offenses, either 
fraud against the United States or computer hacking or conspiring with the Russians uh, to affect the election. So I don't think that's there. I think we would see more evidence of that. He's obviously in some danger. Again, I'm assuming he, he's not going to be indicted while he's in office unless it's under seal. He's obviously in some danger in the Southern District. These are serious people, and we don't know all the facts, and election laws recondite. It can be difficult to prove, as we saw in the Edwards case, but he's in some real peril there. Um, I, I, I agree. I think of the buckets for him as collusion, obstruction, and campaign finance. On collusion, agree, we haven't seen any direct evidence of criminality by him yet. It may be there. We haven't seen it yet. Obstruction, I think you can make a pretty good obstruction case based on what we know, but it is there are constitutional <laughs> arguments. Uh, uh, as we see the incoming, maybe maybe incoming attorney general advancing, that the president can obstruct justice without you know something like telling a witness to lie. Um, he has some defenses there. And then campaign finance, where it's pretty clear you have a paper trail, you have cooperating witnesses, not just Michael Cohen, but the, the head of David AMI. Pecker. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me he's got real criminal exposure there. And, it, and I don't see how the Department of Justice just does nothing with that case and his criminal exposure. Because the oh. message then is the president is above the law. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and what I mean by do nothing, I don't think they can just wait and say he's the sitting president. We can't indict him. Let's just wait and see. Maybe he doesn't get reelected and the statute of limitations doesn't run until 2021 and we'll indict him in 2021. You, one, you can't take the risk that he gets reelected. Two, for that OLC opinion that the president can't get indicted to have any real meaning, there has to be some other mechanism for accountability. That well, it's supposed to be impeachment. impeachment. Well, right. so let's just and, talk and about so that for a second. The Justice Department yeah. has to make that evidence available to the body that's in charge of impeachment you've thought in some a, way. You've thought a lot about that. What is, what's the mechanism? What, what are the avenues for the SDNY to actually bring that information to Congress? I think there are two. One is to you know follow the path everyone thinks Mueller is following, which is to write a report at the end of this and say, here's all the evidence we have of the president, ask the attorney general to make that report available to Congress. That's tricky, obviously. The attorney general might say no. The president might order the attorney general to say no. It's very difficult. But there's specific, the there, there are specific regulations in the, uh, the special counsel rules that, that, that require, require that, yeah, but, but not for the yeah, for and it's, and it's unch- SDNY. And it's uncharted territory. Cong- you know, the department doesn't typically write reports at the end of criminal investigations. You either indict or you don't. You don't write a report. You don't hold a press conference, as Jim Comey did, <laughs> I think, mistakenly. So I think the other path is they bring further indictments in this case, and those indictments lay out all the evidence. And you can see, you can see from looking at the Cohen plea agreement and the AMI non-prosecution agreement where those indictments might come. There is another executive at the Trump organization that approved the reimbursement of Cohen. It's executive two. Ex- executive Pres- two. We don't know who that is. Presumably that's one of his sons. We don't know that, but it's whoever saw where Eisenberg worked with. Or, be, or his daughter. Or, well, she was gone. It was, it was in she 2017. Was okay. and Wait, the, with and who, who worked that, with? What's uh-huh. that? I thought Saul said, Eisenberg, the the no, that's son. me. Yeah, right. <laughs> wait, wait, because we could have some news <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, excuse me. That, yeah, sorry to sorry to put you in the. I was getting uh, excited. Is it, is it Alan? We have Alan. A, Alan Weisberg. for you, oh, yeah. Mr. Weisberg. <laughs> Alan. Yeah. Excuse me, Alan. Yeah. Um, Iceberg Goldberg. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. Right, right. So, um, and then the other obvious way to do it is to indict the Trump organization. Right. I mean, the right, Trump right. Or, any, look. If you see AMI taking a non-prosecution agreement here, 
why would you not think that the Trump organization either has to plead guilty to a crime or face indictment? And the evidence as laid out did uh, identify uh, all sorts of chicanery in the in the bookkeeping, <laughs> in the way the uh, payments to Cohen were recorded as a legal retainer. This is to compensate him for his work paying off Stormy Daniels and also, I think, IT expense, which was completely bogus. Right. Don't, but look, don't forget the court of public opinion. You know, you're talking about on all of this stuff, you're talking about what the Saturday Night Massacre had an effect. It began the downfall of Richard Nixon. If, for example, Bob Mueller writes a report and Congress asks to see it and Bill Barr says no, that's going to have an effect. That's going to affect public opinion. That's going to be a constitutional crisis. So the stuff is going to come out. This cumulative effect of uh, every day you open the paper and there's a new investigation or a new charge, we're already seeing that have an effect. But, but I, I want to drill down on something on the campaign finance issue, because the one precedent for the Justice Department bringing a case like this was John Edwards, in which they charged him with illegal campaign expenditures to pay off the woman with whom he was having an affair and who fathered his, his child. Now, Matt, you were there when the Justice Department made that decision, which was quite controversial at the time. Tell us what you recall about the back and forth about whether to bring that case against John Edwards. Yeah, it was a shitty case from the beginning. The department didn't really have any good witnesses. The two people who had financed the entire thing, one was dead, one was 100 years old and couldn't come testify. But the political circumstances inside the department made it very hard to not let a prosecution go forward. You had a holdover U.S. attorney in North Carolina. Now a congressman. Now a congressman (laughs) who had been investigating the case in the previous administration. He was held over. George George Holding. Holding. George Holding. He was allowed. A good guy. Yeah. He was allowed to stay on for a while to oversee this investigation. And you had the criminal division took part, but it was really the U.S. attorney's office in the lead. They were both recommending prosecution, the criminal division and notably the U.S. attorney. And Holder was recused, but I think there was some sense that there was a sense at Maine Justice that this is a shitty case. It's probably not going to win at trial, but we can't say no. But what about what about the legal basis for us? Does a payment, a hush money payment, if that's what it was, to a woman to silence her during a political campaign, does that add up to a campaign expense that had so, to be? reported so to the FEC. Two, two things, the law and the facts. The law in that Boy, case— Boy, you said the, it. That's, the, that's right. the key. The yeah, the, the, the judge in that case, what he found is that the jury only had to find that it was one of the reasons they made this expenditure. Right. Well, that's what the judge it, found. I'm just talking about that, but, the, within but the justice department. But, it, but, it, but, it, but it's, it's really significant because what Rudy has, has been arguing is if they were making these payments to avoid embarrassment to his family, then it wasn't a campaign— uh, it wasn't campaign finance violence. The judge in that case said no. It could be for multiple reasons, but as long as one of them was for to hide it from. To, so he to, validated that he validated the legal prosecution. Validated the legal theory. Did everybody at the Justice the, Department buy into that theory? Yeah, everyone bought into that theory. What we thought was that the facts in the case were so horrible that they wouldn't find keep, that keep the in jury mind, wouldn't find and, and keep somebody in mind, guilty. This is something we, you know, there's so little historical memory in Washington. What I remember about the John Edwards prosecution is I want I'm certainly identified as a conservative and I went on to the day show and attacked the prosecution even though I'm not an Edwards fan <laughs> and I think of people like um, Elliot Burke who's a well-regarded election lawyer and ethics lawyer in Washington I'm not aware of any prominent Republican who supported the prosecution why, why of, did of, you John, of John <coughs> Edwards and partly 
because they were operating under a theory that had never even been considered a campaign violation, much less a criminal violation. But keep, all, keep also in mind, and I'm not an election law expert. It's an arcane area of law. But Matt made a good point. The facts of every case are different. If we believe what some of the stuff we've seen in the, in the I think, in the American media or the mm-hmm. Pecker nondisclosure agreement, you're talking about people who sat down at the beginning of a presidential campaign and came up with this agreement on how we're going to kill any stories. That's a bad fact. Okay? Right. A lawyer and, would and, call that a bad and fact. And the president says, what can you do to help my campaign? Right. 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 So well, it's all going to depend partly yeah. – Partly on the facts, but there are two. There are two big legal issues, as I understand them. One is, as Matt pointed out, is it a personal expenditure or a campaign expenditure? And the other element is, which we've seen some recent stories on this, on what Trump knew about election law, is it's a willfulness requirement for it to be criminal. The defendant has to know he is violating the law, and so. Those aren't a cakewalk, even if you have good facts. I mean, listen, the question I've asked before on this show is if he had reported on his FEC report $130,000 hush money to (laughs) former paramour or alleged former paramour, would the FEC have allowed that as a permissible use of campaign dollars? Probably. You think so? Is there any precedent for them doing so? Well, no, because, look, most people operate with some sense of shame, right? (laughs) Most people wouldn't. Well, well, they would say legal expenses. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, well, there's that. There's a lot of stuff that's run through legal expenses on on, on FEC reports. But, look, here is the thing. Does anyone really buy that? Would anyone really buy that Trump was doing this for any purpose other than the campaign? Do you think Trump was h- trying to hide from personal embarrassment? Donald Trump, who has you know, cheated on all of his wives, has <laughs> bragged about cheating on his, all of his wives, was doing it for some uh, reason yeah. other than the, the campaign. I mean, it, there well, are a lot of really bad facts. Right? I don't know about that. I mean, it's a bad fact that you're doing this right after your child is born. But still, it's a bad fact that this is all done, appears to be done, at a time at the beginning of the campaign where it looks like it's a campaign-related activity, and that doesn't look good. And that's that's what's so fascinating about a lot of things yeah. that Trump is being investigated. So, so how important is the is the willfulness piece of this? So it's not enough. So it's not a crime right. if it's so not it's, willful. Right, and so it's it's not enough that you know if there's lots of evidence that Trump knew he was doing this to affect uh, the outcome of the election. That's not enough because I think one of Trump's main defenses here is he's and putting Cohen, it on Michael Cohen. Cohen Michael, was my lawyer. He, he was my he's lawyer. He's supposed to tell he's, me he's if the, there's something it, wrong it, with it, this. Exactly. All you need is one conversation where Cohen or somebody else said to, said to Trump, and I'm not sure there is such one, is we're doing it this way so that we don't have to report it as a campaign expenditure. I mean, you can infer willfulness from all of the facts, but still the person has to know that he's violating in some sense, uh, violating a legal I, I, obligation. I agree with you. In, in one sense, the the Pecker meeting early on is the most problematic for him. The fact that they were talking right at the start of the campaign about how they were going to kill stories about women that could be embarrassing to him. And, you know, my takeaway from this is uh, the investigations into Trump all began, remember, uh, well, you know, at least we first learned about them in the context of the Steele dossier, which made the allegation that the Kremlin had a sexual compromise on Trump. The truth may end up being that it was actually the National Enquirer that had the sexual compromise on Trump, and he actually conspired to uh, conceal it. 
I hadn't heard that. Well, you just did. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so, all right, Saul, you have had some experience with impeachment. Uh, You were part of the uh, Ken Starr team that delivered the report to Congress that led to the impeachment of uh, Bill Clinton 20 years ago this week, I believe. that's right. Are we looking at another impeachment scenario with the new Democratic House of Representatives in a couple weeks? Well, I I think we're certainly headed in that direction. I think they're going to be, from what I've heard from Congressman Nadler, they're going to be very careful in how they go about that. And I think it's going to start with just House Intelligence and Committee investigations, that kind of thing, and then we'll probably blossom into impeachment. So they have to realize if they just start off after the election victory and start saying we're going into impeachment, that's not going to go over well. But we are certainly heading in that direction, and that's appropriate, as Matt said, and if you've said, if you can't indict the president, the constitutional mechanism is impeachment. And, uh, Matt, what do you think the prospects would be? You know, it depends on two things. One, what do Mueller and the Southern District of New York uncover and make public? And two, where is public opinion at that time? And the second is influenced somewhat by the first. It's also influenced by other things, by the way, like how the economy is doing and uh, other facts related to the president's political standing. I think Nancy Pelosi has said something very smart, which is you don't impeach a president if the public's not there. And I think that's the lesson of the the Clinton impeachment. And unlike Newt Gingrich and Bob Livingston at that time, Nancy Pelosi has a much much more control over her caucus than I think she did, and much more control than any Republican speaker has had in the last few years. If the liberals in her caucus are you know really want to push impeachment, and she doesn't think it's the right thing to do, she will win that fight. You know, and, and that means not just impeachment mm-hmm. in the House. That it, means conviction, conviction yeah, in the right. Senate with that's, two-thirds of the Senate. That's exactly And right. also keep in mind that another thing that plays into it is uh, the Democrats, whether you think they were right or wrong, when Clinton was impeached, they were in absolute lockstep in support of him. And some of Nadler's comments have already come back to haunt him that we don't go after a president for private sexual behavior. So that's going to play into it as well. And remember, whatever else you did or didn't have in the case of President Clinton, there's really no question that he uh, lied under oath in a, in a civil rights proceeding in the, in the Paula Jones, whatever you think about the grand jury. He, he lied in that on two key points, on whether he was alone, remember being alone with Monica Lewinsky in, in the sexual relations part, and that he obstructed justice, not only in the lying, but in the gifts, the retrieving of the gifts, the, the conversations he made to Betty Curry. Now, people denied it at the time, but there's no question that that happened. Those are federal felonies. So I think there's going to have to be a sense that there's going to have to be enough. I don't think the campaign, uh, I don't have any doubt the Southern District is very serious about the campaign finance violations, but that's not going to be, that's not going to be enough. Well, I think there's one other wild card here, which is congressional investigations. And I know there's a lot of skepticism, a lot of cynicism about the ability of Congress to really uh, investigate thoroughly and, and, and hit pay dirt. We should remember that when the Republican House was investigating Donald Trump, along with Democrats, a lot of people were not subpoenaed. A lot of testimony was not taken. A lot of investigative avenues were not gone down. And so let's remember what happened. What was the turning point in Watergate? Desikoff, you're a student of uh, scandals. Turning point was Alexander Butterfield revealing a taping system. We're not going to find a taping system, I don't think, although Donald Trump does have a proclivity for uh, taping, and so did Michael Cohen. But that was a moment that 
kind of hinge of history and turned everything around. And I, well, and, I just and, sent, I believe it was the McCord letter to Judge Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Butterfield was right. important. By the way, who do you, do you remember who you remember who, uh, who asked the question of Butterfield? There actually was a, was a Fred Thompson, wasn't it? It was actually Scott Armstrong. It was Scott, the, Armstrong, Scott Armstrong, the majority investigator. Post reporter? Who, my first yeah. job in journalism. Yeah, all was, right. Uh, Connecting you to the <laughs> events of Watergate. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Clinton impeachment did, I think, teach a lesson, as Matt said, that you have to have public support. You know, we have a Senate. We don't need no stinking public. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. You know, you have a Senate with 53 Republicans, uh, you know, even more committed to Trump than they were in the current uh, Senate. So it does make it a very difficult scenario to see how impeachment plays out. But I agree on one point, which is that Congress has an important role to play, which they've abdicated none you know, we've had no public testimony from any of the key fact witnesses. Two years, we're near two years into this. It was January of 2017 that both the House and Senate said they were going to investigate the Trump campaign and any links uh, to the Kremlin. And two years later, none of the fact witnesses have been brought up to testify in public before the TV cameras. I can't imagine that this is going to go on much longer, that we will have to see those hearings pretty soon. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's not just in these cases, by the way, but this administration has been filled with scandal. Not just, I mean, Trump scandals make all the news, but you have scandals at the EPA, at Interior, at HUD, over and over. And none of those have really been investigated in a serious way by Congress. And Given the kind of caliber of people that have joined this administration, there are some people who would go into any administration, and then there are some real hacks and morons and just people that have no business serving in government who I suspect we're going to find over the next six months, year, in front of microphones and hearings in the Democratic-led House that are going to uncover all manners of illegality in this administration that we haven't even wow. begun to touch can on. I, can I disagree with one thing? I, I totally sure. agree with Matt on Quickly. that point, but I want yeah. to disagree with one thing you said. Nancy Pelosi said you, you can't get ahead of the people. That's not the same as getting he- ahead of the Senate. If there's a strong enough case for impeachment, I can see them voting on it and dumping it in the Senate's lap. They're going to have the media behind them. It can be very embarrassing for the Republicans in the Senate. So I don't I don't think it's necessarily, oh, there's no way because they're 53 Republican senators. So keep that in mind. All right. Well, what we hope for on Skullduggery is uh, plenty of hearings and plenty of proceedings uh, to give us lots to talk about. Saul, you wanted to get in a plug for what? Your website, your Twitter handle? What is it? Uh, At Weisenberg Saul. All my right. Twitter handle. Your Twitter handle. Okay, that's where you uh, get Saul's words But you're not uh, really supposed to say, what? you're really not supposed to say, Saul, you wanted to get in a plug. <laughs> what you're really supposed to say is, let's try this again. Uh, okay. if, if all of you listeners aren't following Saul on Twitter, you should be. Ta- Saul, what's your Twitter handle again? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. At Weisenberg Saul. And Miller, well, yours? Uh, at, at Matthew A. Miller. All right. Uh, Saul Weisenberg, Matt Miller, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Right. Thanks. Thanks to Matt Miller and Saul Weisenberg for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. And be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you next week.